we are continuing a series called God With Us, and we're really talking about the presence that Jesus gives to us, the hope, the joy, the peace, uh, all the things that Jesus brought into this world, our salvation, our deliverance, our prosperity. And I decided that within three weeks, I want to take the three most favorite messianic psalms that foretell of the coming of Jesus, my personal three favorite, chapters 2, chapter 22, and chapter 110, and I want to unwrap a gift that Jesus has given to us. We know God's presence is everything, but he gives us spiritual gifts as well to help us navigate in this life, not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of other people and so that we can draw closer to him. So let's pray and we're gonna dive into part two. Thank you, Father, so much for your goodness and for what this month really represents and your children celebrating that we could become children of God because you sent your only son to take our place. As we open up the scriptures here this morning, we thank you, Father, for all that you've already given and poured out. And we ask by your grace and your mercy this morning that you would give us listening ears and an open heart that from heaven we can hear a word from God. Thank you for the blessing that's upon us and the things that we will do today in fellowship and, and eating together and sharing a meal. Thank you that we have this moment. No cell phone in front of our face, no evening news, no tasks that need to be checked off, no chores around the house, no errands. But right here, right now, in your presence, we are still, we are expecting, and we are so grateful for what you want to pour out into our hearts right now. Thank you for this worship moment. Thank you for the time in your word now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, today we're going to look at Psalm 22. So if you have your Bibles, please go with me to the 22nd Psalm. And this here, you're going to hear in this chapter or this psalm a very familiar wording. And as always, I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard, and I just want to highlight a few things in this chapter. So I'm going to read a little bit, explain a little bit, read a little bit, explain a little bit, and go with me to Psalm 22, New American Standard. We're going to begin in verse 1, and I won't read the entire psalm, but we're going to read specific verses here this morning. Beginning in verse 1, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. And we've heard, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me before? And this, of course, is pointing towards the time when Jesus was dying on the cross. And in a moment, he felt as if God was not with him, as if the presence of God was not in Jesus. And the reason that Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me, much like David is crying out, why have you forsaken me, is because it came like a shock. It's a question. It's an exclamation. How? You are the one that says in Exodus 13 that never will you leave me, never will you forsake me, but in this moment, I can't sense you. I can't feel you. And in a shock, why have you left me to fend for myself? Where is my help? Why have you forsaken me? But you know, for Jesus, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he who had no sin became sin so that we could become children of God. So can you imagine? It's enough of a burden to deal with my own mistakes and my own pride, but Jesus on his shoulders carrying the weight of the entire world's sin and every generation to come sin on his shoulders. Some say that Jesus didn't die of crucifixion, that he actually died of a broken heart because for the first time in his life, he felt like he couldn't sense the presence of God because the weight of sin was enough to distract him from being able to commune with the Father. And we're gonna see uh, in just a little bit that God actually never left him. 
Many people think that as Jesus took on sin, that the Father could not look at that evil. He could not look at that sin. So he turned his face from his only begotten son and left him. But we're going to see something at the end of this psalm that says otherwise. But continuing in verse 2. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And I love how David is saying this, but Jesus as well, where he's saying, you are still holy. I have called out and you have not given me an answer. Now, just because we hear silence sometimes doesn't mean that God is not working. It does not mean that he's not still moving. God could be orchestrating stuff behind the scenes that we have no clue about. And that's why we can trust in such a good God because he's always working on our behalf. He never sleeps or slumbers. He's always moving. But it's important for us to cry out in the same way that David and Jesus did, yet you are holy, my God. He's not concerned about the enemies. He's not concerned about those persecuting him. He's not concerned about the injustice and the unfairness. He says, no, 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 my focus is still on you, God. My God, you are holy. You have a plan. Who cares what happens here? I'm following you. I'm trusting you. In you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them, and you cried out and, and they were delivered. And in you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men despised by the people. And all who see me sneer at me, and they separate with the lip and wag their head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, because he delights in him. And we see this Centuries later, when they're mocking Jesus on the cross, you who say you can be raised from the dead, where's your God now? Call, call, have your God deliver you from this cross. And those people at that time thought that the cross was the ultimate, that you couldn't escape a Roman execution, that you couldn't escape being murdered in this way. But Jesus says, I could call legions of angels to come down and handle this, but I am in obedience taking the place of sinful men. Let's scroll down to verse 24. And remember, I said that Jesus could not sense the presence of God on the cross. He cried out, why have you forsaken me? But here we see in verse 24, a loving heavenly father. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nation. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. And all those who go down to the dust will bow down before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. And we'll pause a little early, early there. But we see here that we have a loving heavenly father who is always with us and will never forsake us and is always available to help us. Psalm 46, verse 1, it says that God is an ever-present help in our time of need. He's always there. And I'm learning that when I can learn to be at peace, I am better equipped to receive God's help. Because I think we all know, we're all seasoned Christians in the room, and we fully understand that having true peace doesn't just mean the absence of conflict, but it really means the awareness of the presence of God. Because you can be in the middle of a storm like Jesus was on that, that sea and hurricane-like winds, and yet he could be asleep because he had peace. 
and the peace that he had in him, he was able to speak to the chaos, and that peace was able to make actual peace all around him. And so if we can learn to be at peace, we can better receive God's help. I mean, Jesus, what amazes me is that he was on earth. He lived in, in a flesh suit. He put his divinity aside so that he can walk in the temptations and the normalcy of human beings. And yet Jesus, still being God, relied on the Father, relied on the Holy Spirit. Read Luke chapter 4, and you see that as Jesus went into the wilderness, he was led by the Spirit. He was filled by the Spirit. He came back in the power of the Spirit. And he walked in a way of a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And all I can say is that if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's will on earth, I need him a whole lot more in my faults and my failures. But Jesus had that peace, and and in fact, he was so aware of the help of the Father and the help of the Comforter, the Helper, Holy Spirit, so aware that Jesus could actually say to other people, my peace I give to you. Not like the world gives do I give, but my peace I give to you. It's supernatural. Not only do we have a supernatural gift in peace, but we, we have a promise of it as well. That though we're also promised trials and tribulations, we're also promised that we can stay connected to the one who speaks a word over our heart that keeps us in a place of peace. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to help, I'm not the fastest to accept help. If you have some pride like me, you know, I'm a very independent person. I don't need people to do a whole lot of stuff for me. Uh, I come from a family where my mom is super independent. My dad is super independent. He'd have a refrigerator on his back going up the stairs because he didn't want to ask a buddy to give him a hand. And I somehow was blessed with those same genes. So I struggle allowing people to bless me or to help me. I always want to do it for myself. But I had some friends that really taught me a lesson on you need, to, you need to receive. By you turning away somebody else's blessing, you are not giving them the option to bless you, and therefore they are blessed by God because of what they've given. You're robbing them of that. And our friends, they have amazing jobs and a ton of money. They actually give away more money per month than I actually make on a paycheck. It's just they're, they were put on planet Earth to be a financial blessing to other people. I'm telling you, they pay people's mortgages. They help people in times of need. They're always trying to outgive God, and it'll never work. But because of that, every time we were with them, whether it's with a movie or having a meal for lunch or for dinner, we always would fight to pay the bill, and they would never let us. And to the point where I had to get tricky— and I would go to the restaurant that we were meeting at. I would give the waiter my debit card before they even showed up and say, don't bring the bill to the table. And I got away with it one time. And then once I revealed my cards, now they started using my trick against me. And there was one time um, I, I have been going to Red Lobster every year on my birthday. It's been a tradition since my son was born. I've missed a couple, but I, almost every year I'm at Red Lobster. So we were at Red Lobster for my birthday, and my friends were there, and of course they paid like they always do, but then they gave me a gift card to Red Lobster again <laughs> so that I can return. I'm like, all right, thank you. And so a couple weeks later, it was lunchtime. It was just my wife and I, and so let's go out and have lunch, just you and I. And we're on the freeway headed towards Red Lobster, and we see our friends in the fast lane, and they're waving to us. They call us say, hey, uh, he has an appointment, but I'm free. What are you guys doing? Oh, we're going to go have lunch. Like, can I tag along? I don't need to eat. I just want to, sure, come on by. We're, we're just hanging out. We got, you know, no plans or anything. So she's there before we get to the restaurant, and she pays again before we even got the meal. She left, gave another gift card, and she paid for the meal. And finally, I'm like, I, I can't win with these people. I absolutely cannot win with these people. And I surrendered 
but it gave me the opportunity to let people bless me. And I know it's tough sometimes, you know, to allow people to, to bless you, but I mean, if, if I can't receive from human beings, how in the world do I expect to receive from God? If in my own pride and flesh, I can't even receive a gift card, how much more when God is trying to offer me something, he's trying to give me a word, and I say, no, thank you, God, I can handle it on my own. And what I've discovered is that God is always here. He is always present. He is the omnipresent one. He's always here. We can't escape his presence. So in reality, it's we who are turning our backs to God. It's we who are refusing the help that God has so graciously offered. In fact, Jesus said, it's better that I go so that way the Holy Spirit may come to you. Jesus said the helper himself, the comforter, the teacher himself is a better gift than my physical presence being with you right here. And so we have access to God, the creator of the universe, 24-7. You and I, as children of God, can connect to him. Yet many times we turn our backs to him. We, we fail to receive the help that he wants to give. If only we would just stay near. If only we would stay near. I've been to several missions trips throughout my life, and every time that I've gone to Costa Rica, I've always gone with a Spanish pastor who was on staff with me. And I loved going with him because he was worse ADHD than me. He was worse of a person that couldn't sit still. And he handled everything, every reservation. He had our plane tickets ready to go, seat assignments. He had the rooms reserved. He had who was going to stay in each room. He had every dinner booked. He had every place done. You didn't have to think about a thing. Even the Spanish, I didn't have to talk. Because I know a good amount of Spanish, but my Mexican-ish is not Costa Rican. Okay, and Central American Spanish is a little bit different than Mexican Spanish, and a lot of the Spanish I know is from the streets, so I can't say that either. So, <laughs> so a lot of the words are not making sense to me. So as long as I stayed near him, I was fine. So I was, I was kind of like uh, Ruth and Naomi in the Bible, you know, where you go, I go, where you stay, I stay. And just as long as I was with him, following him around all of Costa Rica, I was fine. And the moments, there was one moment where we were going across the border to Nicaragua, and, and we had to go through customs, and I'm standing there with a smile on my face, and I look, and he's not there. Uh, and, and there's a long line, and people are angry, and I'm just in the lead. And I shouted his name, and he came, and he helped me. And whenever I found myself away from him, I was stressed. There was danger. There was confusion. But all I had to do, the only effort I had to do was physically just be near him. And as believers, all we have to do is just be near him him. His presence is always available. We turn our backs to him. We have pride. We have failures. But if we can just turn the affections of our heart constantly to him and just be near him, your desire for him will grow. Your hunger for him will grow. Your stress will diminish. Things will shift as you remain in his manifest presence. And I've discovered that God is a God of the impossible. He offers so much help to us. And all he's asking, he's not asking us to do the impossible. All he's asking us is for our possible, what we're capable of, our surrender, our obedience, the, the faithfulness that we can bring, the Christian disciplines of keeping our faces in the word of God, keeping a bent knee in prayer and, and constantly going after him in our affections. He's just asking us for the possible. He's just saying, do what I ask you to do. I'll take care of everything else. And don't you love somebody who takes care of all the details for you? He says, don't you worry, I got it taken care of. I got it under control. How much more our supernatural Heavenly Father who wants to be there to help? And I've learned that peace is not something that we can earn. It's not something that we can, quote, get. 
when the God of heaven has declared that he has given us every spiritual blessing, he has deposited the Holy Spirit in our, our soul, if we are wall-to-wall Holy Ghost, that means we already have help. We already have peace, and it's something that we need to realize more than we need to fight to get. It's not that you're deserving of peace. We're not deserving of anything. That's why Jesus came, the whole point. But he brought us peace that we can realize and that we can release into the situations that's around us. It really is a matter of perspective. Because in this life, we have two ways that we can respond. We can either react to the devil, and we all have some reactions, don't we? We, we all embarrass us some of the reactions we've had in our lives. When something bad happens, we can react to the devil, which is exactly what he wants, or we can respond to the Father. We have a choice to make in the middle of it. And Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, where we will find mercy and grace in our time of need. We need to go to him. If something happens, if we fall apart, if we are prideful, if we are stuck in an addiction, if we have a bad habit, whatever it may be, we need to go boldly to the throne of grace because he's the one who wants to give help. He wants to pour it out in his mercy. So we have to have hearts that are ready to receive, hearts that are ready to, to realize what God has already given to us. So there's not any notes in your bulletin, but if you are taking notes, please write down these two words for me. The first word is rooted. Rooted, like a tree is rooted in soil. And the second word is ready. We want to be rooted and we want to be ready. Rooted so that we don't react. Rooted in the word of God. Rooted in Christ. And ready so that we have a proper response. Now my son, he plays uh, basketball for Life High School in Waxahachie. And we've been traveling everywhere, game after game after game. My wife and I are addicted to high school sports. (laughs) I think many of us are. My wife's uh, grandma, uh, she's in her latter years now and dealing with uh, dementia and so forth, uh, we have discovered, because she loves softball and watching all the games, that if you just put grandma at a softball game, it doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't matter if she knows the people or not, she's happy as can be, right? And we're the same way with our son. We just love and are, are proud of him and love to be a part of those. But there was one team that he lost to. They don't always lose, but they lost to this one team, and I was amazed because these 14- and 15-year-old freshman basketball players, they probably drew about 20, 21 fouls, and they would get, you know, two shots each time at the free throw. These kids did not miss. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about out of 22 shots, they probably missed one or two. But 20 points of that game came from just free throws. Now, the pros in the NBA struggle hitting it every time. I mean, think about Shaquille O'Neal. That guy could... Touched the rim, not even jumping, but he couldn't make a free throw to save his life. And that's a professional. I mean, Kobe Bryant was out there shooting 3,000 free throws a day, and he can count on it. But these are 14-year-old kids, and they did not miss. Now, I don't know what that coach was teaching these kids in the locker room and at practices, but I want to know the secret. How in the world that you get these little rascals to focus enough and be disciplined enough to not miss? I'm just like... Who wants to take some bets right now? Because I bet you these kids, they're not going to miss right now and just sunk it. Nothing but net, nothing but net, nothing but net. They came so ready, but they came in an unexpected way because nobody expects you to almost hit 100% in free throws, but they were nailing it and they won the game. They came ready. They were ready. And in Psalm 55, verse 22, uh, God declares over us that never will he let the righteous be shaken. 
Never will he let them be shaken. In the Hebrew, that word shaken means that you won't be varying. You won't be wishy-washy. You're going to be focused. You're going to be firm. You're going to be rooted. And we need to stay rooted in all seasons. Whether life is going great, whether life is disastrous, whether we lose a loved one near to us, our response should be the same because we should respond from the Father. We shouldn't be shaken in that sense. But that just doesn't come naturally. God doesn't sprinkle fairy dust on you and then you're a very mature and, and sound Christian. It, it takes discipline and it takes work. In Psalm 1-3, I, I love this so much. The whole psalm talks about blesses the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is on the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Reading the Bible in a year is great, but the Bible actually tells us meditate on this thing day and night. That could be one verse. Muttering like the little babies we hear when they're just talking this little gibberish. That's what the Hebrew word means for meditating. Just saying it over and over. The Jewish men, they actually rock when they recite scripture back and forth. They're doing something physical so that they get it into their heart. But they're rooted. It says that blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord because he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Who will produce fruit in its season and whose leaf doesn't wither. So when you find yourself rooted into the living water, when you find yourself rooted into the scripture, you're always connected to the source of peace, always connected to the giver of life. And no matter what the season may be, you're not going to wither. But that takes intentionality. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, it talks about being rooted in Christ. So not only can we be rooted in the word of God, but we can be rooted in the word, which is Jesus himself. And to be rooted means to abide. And how do you abide? Just be near. Be there, learn, develop relationship, have history, but doing everything that you possibly can to grow. There's a lot of gardeners in our church that love to garden and and have beautiful backyards. I'm horrible at it. I have one aloe vera plant right now that's not given up the ghost yet, and I'm very bad at it. But I know if I give sunlight, proper watering, and proper fertilization, and everything that it needs, it will thrive but I tend to get distracted. I forget to water. I forget to pull it inside when it's 31 degrees in the morning in Texas, and they die. You know, and the same for the Christian. If we just do the small things consistently, giving our souls everything that it needs to grow, we're going to find ourselves deeper and deeper rooted in the love of God. And uh, back in California, we have uh, palm trees, and there's only palm trees in Galveston and Corpus Christi and Every In-N-Out burger that's in North Texas, you'll see the, you know, and when the frost came, uh, the snow came last year, all the palm trees in North Texas, the heads were chopped off, and it was just the branches, and some came back to to life and not. But the thing I like about uh, palm trees, because they're basically worthless trees. They don't provide shade. (laughs) I had a little old lady in one of my churches, I was like, I hate palm trees. They're so useless. There's no shade. There's no fruit. There's no nothing. But the thing about them is they can flex with the wind. And in fact, when the wind blows, their roots get stronger. The more it sways, the deeper the roots go. And so in life, we shouldn't become embittered. We, we shouldn't become falling apart when life's tragedies hit us. If anything, if we stay rooted, no matter what happens, those trials and tragedies in our lives are actually going to make our roots firmer because we're, we're going harder into the things of God We're digging deeper into what he wants to tell us in that moment. And we're surviving yet another storm that we can look back at our history with God and said, he got me through that one. He got me through that one. He got me through that one. So what is this one? What's another thing? I want to be rooted and established in Jesus. 
And the second word I gave you was to be ready. Peace is realized when you stay ready, how you respond, how you respond, because you have a choice. You have the freedom to choose how you will react. You're responsible for your own emotions and your own reactions. God's not in charge of that. You, as a, as a Christian who has an identity in Christ and knows who you are, can choose how you are going to respond to a given situation. There's some great uh, worship leaders, Jonathan and Melissa Hessler. They wrote that song, um, I'm No Longer a Slave to Fear. Beautiful, beautiful song. But they live out in the East Coast, I think in uh, North Carolina, and they have big property out there in like a forest type of a place. And one day, the couple was out on their deck, and they're just looking out miles and miles in their property, and it's nothing but dead trees, dead trees, because it's wintertime. Now, I don't know, we may have some spring lovers and some summer lovers here. I love winter. Give me that ugly, dead brown grass. Give me those barren trees. Give me those gray skies. Give me that 20-degree weather. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love winter. It's my favorite. Football comes in the fall, and that means get ready. Your favorite season is coming. Winter. I love it. So they're on the deck, and they're looking out at all these dead-looking trees. And it's like every winter, we have to look out at this bleh. You know, it's just, it's not nice to look at. But in that moment, the Spirit of God spoke to her heart, and he said, don't you love, though, how far you can see in the barrenness? How far you can, your perspective is different in the barrenness than in the fruitful seasons. And she had this awesome moment with the Lord that just taught her, don't neglect the barren seasons of life. Don't neglect the, the troubled seasons of life. God still wants to speak to you, and your perspective can be completely different. Your perspective can change in a moment if you're paying attention and tapped into the Holy Spirit. Now, your perspective, that whatever you determine your perspective to be, is going to determine your heart values. And your heart values are, are what you'll say yes and no to. That's why businesses have mission statements and core values, because it determines as a whole what we're going to say yes to or what we're going to say no to. But we in our hearts, we have the ability to make heart values. My, my wife and I have a value. The home has to be fun. If it's not fun, everything falls apart. We have a value in, in our hearts that we're always going to take the high road. When we were betrayed by a senior pastor and lost our jobs and faced homelessness, we didn't get bitter. We took the high road. How can we bless? What can we say? What are we going to put out on social media that's going to be a testimony to other people that when they get hurt, they can respond in the same way? We set our own values in our hearts. It's almost like the autopilot in your heart. We know there, there's some pilots here too, but an autopilot, you pre-program a destination and that plane will go that direction. Now you can manually grab the wheel and turn it and it'll go off course, but the moment you let go of that steering wheel, it's going to self-correct itself back. You know, I will never have a Tesla that's on auto cruise control and autopilot. It scares the daylights out of me. I want to feel the car and the steering wheel. scares the daylights out of me. But on an airplane, autopilot. Where you set it is where it's going to go. What's the autopilot of your heart? What is it? What is it that even if you veer off and you have a bad moment, the moment you come to your senses like the prodigal son, you come right back to what was pre-programmed. That takes work to be ready. That means you're, you're going towards the Holy Spirit to hear from him. You're developing history with him. And that's the blessing that we have in God, that he is a help. So much so that one-third of God in the Trinity is the helper who has come to be with us. In John 14, 26, it says, The helper, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things that I have said and bring to your remembrance. The disciples and all that they face, 
they never had to worry that they weren't going to get a word from God. They simply had to just step out in faith, and even in the moment, the Holy Spirit would bring to them what they needed to say. We have a blessing in God. And finally, and I'll close with this because I'm hungry, <laughs> and I can't wait to chat with y'all, but with the, with the help that we get from God, if we can learn how to receive it, walk in it, then something changes in our ministry. We become what Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 says, we become peacemakers. The Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Peacemakers. Now, right now, if I had a thermometer, I would tell you that this room temperature is probably 72, 73 degrees. Uh, if it was my house, it'd probably be 55 degrees because I love winter. But in this room, it's probably 73 degrees. That's what a thermometer will tell me. But these little lock boxes right here are thermostats. And the one who holds the key can open it and self-check that thing and program it to whatever temperature and change the climate in the room. Now, peacekeepers, those are the passive ones that like to avoid conflict and, and like to distract people. When, when two people are fighting inside of a room, the, the peacekeepers are like, hey, guys, how about them chargers? How about them cowboys? You know, they just change the situation, right? Try to deflect and distract. But peacemakers, they'll come in to find the root cause and bring a solution to that problem. And as children of God who carry the wisdom, the discernment, the giftings, the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I are called to change situations, to change circumstances, to shift atmospheres and cultures to the people all around us. Now, I'm telling you that the greatest enemy to the revival that we want to see in this country, the greatest enemy to revival is not sin, it's not evil, it's not politics, it's not the culture. The biggest enemy is survival, the passive Christian. It's not that the world is doing evil. It's that those who have been equipped to do the good sit on their hands. And I don't say that in a condemning way at all. It's whatever God tells you to do. All you may do is share to your neighbor. And that's everything God wants you to do in your entire life. I'm not condemning you. But I'm saying if we want to see revival happen, we need to tune into what God is saying and not turn our backs to him. Because never will he leave us, never will he forsake us. And he has a word for us, and he wants to lead us into a place of our destiny. Christmas time is when we celebrate that Jesus was and is our peace, and he brought a help so that we don't just survive this life, but we can revive it in the power of the Holy Ghost. And I pray as we navigate through December, whether we're talking about hope or peace or joy, all the things that Jesus is bringing to us when he was born on this planet and deposited into our spirit, that you become more aware of these simple elementary things that we've known all our lives, but they become more real because our hearts become more intentional. So, Father, we're about to dig into some amazing food. We're going to spend some time chatting with each other. But I thank you, Father, for the church. I thank you that it's not a business. I thank you that it's not an organization, that it's an organism of family members who have come together in the spirit of God to be in your presence, to hear from you, and to ultimately look to you as our greatest help. And I just declare right now that those who are in this room who need help, those who need a touch from God, those who need encouragement, those who need a confirmation, those who simply just need to stop being distracted and look back to you. God, may there be a grace and a mercy upon it. That this week, Father, as we remember, as we reflect, as, as we're reminded yet again of these scriptures, the things that were shared today, that you would help us to develop a greater sensitivity 
to your voice. Thank you for the blessing that is on my friends here. Thank you so much, God, that we are called yours, that we have found salvation, that we can walk in the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So as we go out of this sanctuary and into another room and Bless our afternoon, Father. Bless the food, all those who prepared it, those who are working diligently in the fellowship hall to make sure everything looks pretty. Father, may you bless our afternoon and enjoy in the presence of our friends, enjoying the joy that you have given to us. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, take your time, family, but we'll see you on over in the fellowship hall in just a minute.